season three of Never Marry a Mitford, a podcast about pop culture from the past and historical heroines. I'm Sarah. And I'm Amelia. We've got loads of things coming up this season, including a discussion about ITV's new Jane Austen adaptation, Sanderton, Hustlers, Downton Abbey, The Crown, food writer MFK Fisher, Carol Shields and Stevie Nicks. But in this suitably spooky first episode, we'll be discussing Madeline Miller's novel Circe, and our heroine will be Nancy Wheeler from Netflix's smash TV show Stranger Things. Circe by Madeline Miller is a feminist retelling of the story of Circe, daughter of the sun god Helios in Greek mythology, who is banished to Ai, where she appears in Homer's Odyssey. Miller's version of the story begins in Circe's childhood, where she is consistently mistreated by her family, and Miller's retelling gives Circe depth and understanding which is missing in her representations in art history and Greek mythology. Throughout art history, Circe has been perceived as a wicked, violent sorceress who transforms innocent men into pigs and transforms love rivals into monsters. Pre-reflect John William Waterhouse in particular has portrayed Circe several times. In each of the representations of her, she is seen as cold and commanding and harsh and violent. She's a, quite a figure to be seen. She's, she exemplifies everything around a powerful, frightening sorceress, which is often how she has been portrayed throughout history in the story of Homer's Odyssey. Um, and this is why Miller's novel is such an interesting take on her story, because it's taken her away from that narrative of being a terrifying, overwhelming sorceress presence who is a real villain into something that's altogether more sympathetic. She's also kind of portrayed as a as a seducer, isn't she? she yes. Kind of, there's the picture, there's a portrait of her where Emma Hamilton is the model for Cersei. And there's another one I'm thinking of, which I think might be in the early 20th century, where she's kind of in a red dress leaning mm. against a wall as well. And every it's kind of that femme fatale look, which fits in a kind of narrative of how she's perceived because she is the woman who was also seduced by Odysseus when and then he returned to Penelope so she occupies this really misogynist space of the other woman so she's been portrayed as quite tempting yeah she's very much a seductress especially in Victorian art she's a lot of the things that everyone warned against like oh she's a seductress you know she's this femme fatale she's an overwhelming female presence and her facial expressions in Waterhouse's paintings in particular are she's frightening she's hard She's got very angular jaws and, you know, her, her dead, dark, cold eyes. And Miller's portrayal of her is none of that at all. Like, and we'll, as we'll come on to, and, and as we kind of go into the discussion, she's very sympathetic. Yeah, so, Amelia, what did you think of Madeline Miller's novel? I loved it. I really loved it. I read it. I read The Song of Achilles and then immediately was like, I love the way that this was written. I think it's really beautiful. I want to find more. So, her, Cersei had actually just come out, so I went and got it on my Kindle and was like, we, I read it on holiday in about a day. And it was a myth, I think, everybody sort of thinks they know, you know, she's the one that turns men into pigs. But then Miller's narrative, it brings lots of other Greek mythology into it. So I didn't know that Circe's sister in Greek mythology was Pasiphae, who was the mother of the Minotaur, and Daedalus and Icarus. It is, a, someone described the book as being a greatest hits of Greek mythology, and it definitely is. It kind of ticks off all these big moments in the Odyssey and in Greek mythology in general. And I think that the way that it's described as the greatest hits of Greek mythology plays into this idea that she's a side character as well, like mm. she's a secondary person with very little depth and Miller's story centres Cersei's experience and centres her feelings and as Amelia was saying in the way it's written it's very lyrical and Cersei in the way that her emotions are portrayed in this very lyrical way gives her this incredible sense of calm and you never think she's not in control 
control of her own emotions. Everything is clear about how she feels. She's very thoughtful. She's very deep. She's very considered. And I think that is completely at odds with the way that she is portrayed in these myths, but also in art history, that she's always reacting to something and she's always trying to tempt people rather than being her own contained person with thoughts and feelings. It's a really amazing feminist retelling. I absolutely agree. And I think it's interesting as well because it repositions her as being mistreated by most of the people in her life, really. She's not as wanted by her father as her brother and sister. Her brother, yeah, particularly by men as well, like yeah. mistreated specifically by men. I mean, her sister is also awful. And her niece, Medea, who was another like, big hitter in Greek mythology, is turns up and she also misuses her, you know. It, mm. Cersei is put upon by literally everybody in her life, but in particular, the men that ought to love her, like yeah, her father, her brother. Her brother begins in their friends and then her brother starts to change and he becomes quite cold and completely distanced and not the person that she knew from childhood. And she has a love affair with Hermes, who also abandons her. She has a son by him, but he abandons her. And she has another love affair with Daedalus, who he also abandons her I think and and then obviously we get to the big bit where Odysseus turns up and they have a love affair he abandons her to go home to his wife so she just lives this life of consistent heartbreak and the reason that she's banished to the island to live alone in the first place is because she does transform a nymph Scylla who was her love rival so she meets this fisherman called Glaucus who she falls deeply in love with and then realises that they can never really be together so she transforms him into a god he then goes to live in Helios's palace and meets Scylla who's beautiful nymph and then Circe in jealousy and anguish and heartache transforms Scylla into uh, this monster basically like a big octopus with loads of arms and forces her to live in a crevice I guess in the sea and she like Scylla becomes this awful monster that, that kills everyone destroys passing ships she's devilish and disgusting and and, C- and then so Circe's sent to live on the island because everyone's wary of her witchcraft and that, well, that she's got capable of doing these things. So she's punished for bestowing a kindness on someone that she thought would love her and then turns around immediately and goes for somebody way more attractive. Mm. So and, and she lives her whole life being disappointed by people, being hurt by people, and yet still remains sympathetic broadly. Like She does snap eventually because mm-hmm. there's only so much a person can take. I think that idea of love and loss is really clear as well in the way that Miller writes so lyrically. I just want to read a section that I was really moved by kind of halfway through the novel. I pressed my face into my lion's fur. Surely there was some divine trick to make the hours go faster, to let them slip past unseen, to sleep for years so that when I woke again, the world would be new. I closed my eyes. Through the window, I heard the bees singing in the garden. My lion's tail beat against the stones. An eternity later, when I opened my eyes, the shadows had not even moved. And I think, like, also this idea of loneliness and loss is is kind of hugely magnified because she is immortal. Yes. And I think this idea of immortality is... And loneliness, and that is her motivation as well for turning the guy, because he's mortal, wants to love him forever and be together forever. And so that is such a huge commitment. And then when he kind of betrays her, you can completely because the novel is written with a lot of focus on Cersei's loneliness and how she's been mistreated throughout her life and the loneliness of being immortal that thread runs through the whole novel and through all of her motivations as well absolutely and yeah a lot of the times her love interests are mortal men which is a problem that she constantly has to grapple with and be aware that she'll have to witness them age and witness them die and she'll never change and yeah it really plays heavily upon her about and which is why when she has this love affair with Hermes it's kind of makes more sense because he's also a god they're in a similar place but he abandons her as well like she falls head over heels for him 
and finally is like amazing like, because technically she's you know she's in banishment she's not supposed to really be speaking with anybody but she finally finds somebody who understands her and think well thinks understands her and then he leaves her and and she yeah and she's also mistreated by her sister Cersei is summoned to help her sister give birth to the Minotaur because she's had this horrific affair with a, a bull and it's that everyone's horrified by it but mm. they have to they have to deal with it and they have to deal with what they're going to do with the baby off Pacifay is kind of portrayed as their father's favorite and she's actually a real bitch and she's horrible and she's really manipulative she also has magic elements and and there's i think that's interesting as well that there's a real wariness around witchcraft and a wariness around magic in a world where gods walk among everybody people have affairs with gods the greek mythology is very much based on gods and humans interacting with one another so it's not it wouldn't it's not unusual for people in this world to see supernatural things and yet there's still a real wariness of witchcraft and yeah. that's always i mean that's a prevalent thing that happens throughout history has always have women who are powerful have magic can make things change are people are wary of them and frightened of them yeah, of um, course, and I think that's kind of gets to the heart of the deep misogyny of the book mm-hmm. as well, is that they're not afraid that she's immortal, she's afraid that she can do something that men can't. Yeah. And I feel like Greek myths being retold happens a lot, and, and I think to do it really interestingly is not unusual, but it's very rare that I feel like it's executed really well. Mm-hmm. I feel like the other version of a kind of woman's story being retold with a more feminist focus is Rachel Cusk's version of Medea, which is at the Almeida, starring Kate Fleetwood. And it did a very similar thing. It centred this woman's experience and told her story and showed how she was hurt, how Jason had left her and how that had an impact on her and how she viewed herself worth. I think there's a line in it which is something like, you stole my history. And I felt that line in particular is a meta-textual comment on Jason's story is told and Medea is a secondary character in that she does this horrific thing and I definitely think that can be applied to this novel by Miller as well is that Cersei is always the secondary character rather than the main rather than the protagonist of her own life and I think that's a great success of the novel is centering her experience and she's been forced to be a secondary character by being forced to exist alone yeah without any comfort without anybody around her and then which is why when Odysseus arrives again it's really heartbreaking and awful because you're like oh my god like and 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 because it's a historical thing you know what's going to happen you know that he's going to go back. You know he's going to leave. But if you kind of read it in the, in the Odyssey, you get to the you get to the, the the woman who changes men into pigs, and you're you think, oh my god, like she's terrifying, she's so scary. And then you when you get to when you read it in Madeline Miller's novel, you're like, oh my god, I would do the same. Mm-hmm. Like, these men are horrific. They try to rape her. They're on in her home, and they turn up. They demand everything of her. They, they demand sexual favors. She's bullied in her own home, and mm. she just snaps. She's spent a whole eternity, literally, fighting off all these people and being disappointed and hurt and then this, these men turn up and she's just like enough is enough and mm. I'm going to frighten them into doing what I want them to do and being shutting up and not shutting up but you know I'm going to frighten them into this is the one sort of power that I have I'm physically mm. not strong maybe but I can do this and I can kind of rule with an iron fist and, and they're in my home now and they have to understand that they can't just take what they want and do what they want mm. and it terrifies them it does terrify them you know what I would like to see a feminist retelling of Go. Hercules <gasps> but the Disney version but yeah. of Meg's point of view because oh, yes. she's more interesting than Hercules she's been through a lot 
she's very hurt. She that. is. Yeah, she's really hurt. Why is she in with Hades? We never really get that much detail she, on she that. She's with Hades? Yeah. Why? We don't have that backstory. I would watch that. They're retelling Sleeping Beauty from Maleficent's point of view. I would watch Disney live action retelling of Meg's version of Hercules' story. Absolutely. No, I, I would I would watch that. Also, interestingly, they're making Cersei into a TV show for HBO, which I think will be really interesting. It's yes, very. Yeah. It's definitely a, a novel that you it, it feels cinematic. The way that stuff is written, there's an amazing passage when they when they're going to Crete to help Pacifier. They've got to try and get through the, these crashing. Well, no, they've got to get past Scylla and they've got to get past these cliffs that crash into each other when ships mm. come through. And it's really like reading it, you're quite like, oh my god, this is proper white knuckle stuff. Like you're getting through it, going, they're never going to make it. Like they 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 can see the light at the end and the t- the tunnel, but you you're just like, they're not going to do it. They're not going to make it through. And she's again, she is the one that helps. It's her ingenuity and her knowledge and her her knowledge of of magic, her knowledge of the world that she came from, that helps them actually escape this fate that would have been her like you know that being ripped apart by Scylla. That interaction is interesting as well because she's just told what happens to Scylla via various different sources that come to her. But when she's actually confronted with what she did she does feel enormous empathy and she feels guilty mm. and she's you know like oh my god that like I did this in a jealous fit really and I don't think it's right and I feel sorry that I did this to her so she's again there's, there's a lot of that's made of making her a really sympathetic character which she's not perceived as in, in the Odyssey yeah definitely This episode, our heroine is Nancy Wheeler, who is one of the leading characters in Netflix's smash hit series, Stranger Things. Amelia, why have we picked Nancy for our heroine for this spooky special? Oh, Nancy's just best. So Stranger Things, for people that don't know, is a smash Netflix TV show that's currently run three series, they've just announced a fourth, which focuses broadly on a group of kids, boys mostly, and the first series focuses on them trying to find their friend who is stuck in this place called the Upside Down, and the second and third are continuations of, of that theme, but it's broadly about childhood and growing up and friendships but with a spooky supernatural element now where nancy comes in is she is mike who is the kind of one of the the leaders of like the, the gang, the gang. yeah his elder sister there, there are two kind of parallel strands that run in the first series in particular that i think make nancy so interesting in that so that Mike is looking for their friend Will, who's been dragged into the Upside Down. And then Nancy gets dragged into this because her friend Barb also goes missing. And no one knows why. But Nancy's had a lot of criticism as a character because she she makes this decision in the one of the first episodes of the first series to... She's got this high school boyfriend, Steve. Oh, Steve Harrington. Steve. Dream Steve. Uh, who I'm sure we'll come back on to. <laughs> so she goes to Steve's party and she drags Barb along and Barb is uncomfortable. She doesn't really want to be there. And... You know, it's a kind of awkward interaction. It's the cool gang and Barb doesn't feel like she should be there. So Nancy goes, jumps in the pool. She goes upstairs to get changed and gets off with Steve. Uh, you know, we would. Um, but, and then Barb is left alone and is dragged into the upside down as a result and is never seen again. So Nancy feels this great amount of guilt about that. But people criticised her because they're like, she's selfish, blah, blah, blah. It is a selfish move. It's a selfish move to drag your friend to something that you know that you might not be comfortable at. But equally, 
it's a 16-year-old selfish decision. Yeah. It's, it's one of those decisions that you make and afterwards you think, well, that was a terrible thing to do to someone. Obviously, your friend then doesn't new, normally get dragged into a supernatural underworld. <laughs> but if you're lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky, like, fingers crossed, normally they're just a bit cross with you. But it's kind of like... it's it's So she faced a lot of flack for that. And actually, I think she's a heroine because she's way more interesting than that decision. She mm-hmm. is the one that leads the group. She is the one that tries to investigate. She's curious... She And so in the third series, she's doing an internship at the local paper and everyone treats her like stupid bimbo who can only get coffee. And actually, she's really curious and she's found this story that she really wants to investigate. And it's weird. And it, it plays a lot into the narrative of season three. But it's her driving that. And she, she uses her curiosity and she uses her... She's really intelligent as well, which is why I think she's a great... She's a sort of... A, she's a secondary character within the series because the broadly it's focused on the kids. But she's a really interesting side not side story, I'm not saying it right, but she's a really interesting like parallel plot that yeah. goes on in the world of Stranger Things. And I think she's a great teenage role model. Mm. I also think, I haven't watched season three, but from season one and season two, she's also kind of the popular girl as well, yeah. who I always find, like I was saying about Cersei, I find representations of popular like this type of type of like archetypal Regina George type figure to be when they're kind of unredeeming and they've got no depth like really really boring I really want to actually understand the impact that that level of popularity at that young age can have on a person and like what the power dynamic is when you're in high school and how that feels and because she's going out with Steve Harrington who's like the dreamboat of the school but she dumps him for creepy Jonathan who's Will's brother so yeah. I find that element of her really interesting. And because wasn't her friendship with Barb, wasn't Barb quite unpopular as well? Yeah, like, Barb her... was kind of like the the dorky, like, dweeby girl who... But she was... Like, but now, the thing about Nancy is that she's really popular, but also she's, she's like, clever. She's the clever one as well, which yeah. is a different view of popularity. Like, yeah, she's going out with Steve... And, but she's often like, Steve, like, I can't do, and like, I want to study for my test and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But she is still definitely, like, popular girl at school. But, yeah, she's friends with Barb is not your kind of typical, like, because, and interestingly, Stranger Things juxtaposes these two things. Like, the other popular kids are Steve's friends at the beginning of series one. And yeah. they're hor- horrendous. Like, even he stops being friends with them because they're like, you are assholes. I don't, like, I don't want to be friends with you. Like and you guys Steve suck. isn't very sympathetic at the beginning either. No. And then kind of he has this entire journey where he becomes the romantic lead of the series and you're just like, oh my God, he's amazing. Yeah, and then he becomes babysitter Steve in series two. Yeah. But I don't want to talk about... Well, I do want to talk about Steve too much, but I can't. I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> but, but... And yeah, it's interesting because I, I got quickly going back to a Steve thing. So there's this this icon of this bat with nails stuck into it that they use to fight the Demogorgons in series one and in series two and it comes back again and actually Natalia Dyer pointed it who plays Nancy pointed it out in an interview where somebody said it was one of those BuzzFeed things where they're like what would you use it's like Steve's bat and she's like actually it was Nancy's bat Steve just Mm. picks it up Nancy is the one that came up with like she her and Jonathan in the first series come up with this plan to trap the Demogorgon and what she does is incredibly brave and I so that that Steve comes to the house to say sorry for being a dick basically and they're like you've got to leave because like this is really dangerous and obviously he's confused he's like what is going on like why are you weird why has he got a gun like so Steve is understandably just freaking out because everyone's bleeding Jonathan has a gun, Nancy has a bat with nails in it. They're like, what the fuck is going on? And so they're trying to get Steve out of the house and she turns on him with a gun. And well, I know she, she eventually gets the gun, but she turns on him and he's like, if you do not leave now, I will shoot you. 
I don't really know. I mean, I'm guessing she is only saying that just to frighten him to leave. But she knows that she's got to try and keep him safe Mm -hmm. because he's freaking out and they need to get rid of him so that he doesn't become endangered either. And so she's really... Like, but she's brave. She masterminds that whole plan, and it's terrifying, you know. She and she and Jonathan actually make it into the upside down to try and find Barb. Yeah. And then in the second series, she spends her whole time trying to seek justice for what happened to Barb yeah. and bring the people who did it, who opened the the wall to the upside down, and be accountable for what they did. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, she's really like full. I think she's a really incredible fun well-written character who has a lot of charm and a lot of like she's I just really love Nancy I think she's great and she fights for what she believes in every single time she pays for a decision that she made a selfish 16 year old stupid decision that she makes when she's at the party by kind of she feels consistent guilt over leaving Barb she knows she shouldn't have done it and she wants to help and she wants to kind of make make the situation right well, it kind of she tries to atone, doesn't she? Yeah. She tries to atone for that decision, and she, by leading this campaign and by being the one to go and find her, it also like drives her motivation. She feels guilty, and she loves her best friend, so she wants to find her. Yeah, De- kind of dead or alive, she wants to know what happened to Barb. Eventually, they find out that Barb was killed, um, and then yeah, that's when she and she is the one that seeks out Weird Murray to talk, kind of whistleblow this whole thing and find out what like, and Nancy masterminds a lot of these really terrifying operations mm. that, and then there's another moment at the end of series two which is really significant and I think shows a lot of growth so at the beginning like Dustin comes and not that like, who's one of the like Mike's friends and one of the kids in the beginning of series one comes round and is like oh, they all kind of have a little crush on Nancy you know she's Mike's big sister and she's pretty and like you know they all have an 11 year old crush on Nancy and she's like oh go away you're so annoying like typical again and she so but by the end of series two Dustin goes they have this like ball and Dustin is like asking all these girls to dance and they're all really mean to him Mm. and Nancy who was helping out realizes that actually she can like as her like being the cool girl she and he it really made me cry and I was kind of like why am I crying over stranger things um (laughs) but it was so Dustin is upset and he's crying on the stairs and she comes over and she asks him to dance and it's like a big leap from her being like just get out of my face like stop annoying me and so she steps up to prove to all these 12 year old girls that Dustin's quite cool and maybe they should dance with him as well and she just does it to make him happy Um, yeah real act of kindness it's also a lovely parallel with Steve who in season two steps up to be their protector as yeah. well. As the popular guy in school, he becomes their, like, there's a whole meme about it, isn't there? Like, he's the babysitter. Steve but he is, is their protector. Yeah. Well, yeah, it became a thing of being that. So, but people ask Joe Keery, who plays Steve, they're like, so what's it like being a father? Um, no, no, they don't even call him a father. What's it like being a mum of six? Yeah. And he's like, well, it's very hard work. <laughs> um, but it's, it, yeah, and it's funny. Like, the, I think Nancy and Steve are... Uh, as a couple and there's a reason that we want to talk about both of them because a lot of them a lot of what kind of Nancy's character ish comes from her relationships with these two boys and not in a way that kind of takes away from her her as a person but also it's a very teenage thing to have is to kind of when you're 16 17 it'd be like focusing on high school boyfriends or whatever so I I think her way that they and Steve Steve is redeemed through her as well, like the way he treats her, the way he wants to look out for her, he promises. And so when they, they kind of, they break up and he's devastated over it. And, but and she, because they've broken up because she, Nancy's realised that she's kind of in love with Jonathan. And, which I, I don't see, but hey ho, but 
me neither. I mean, Jonathan's fine. Jonathan's a fine character, but I just think Steve is more interesting in terms of like his redemptive. Jonathan just goes from creepy to a bit less creepy. Whereas yeah, definitely. Steve... I mean, it's the difference between Nathaniel and Josh. Yeah. Like, Nathaniel has uh, from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, sorry. Like he has Nathaniel has. Uh, I will argue this until I die. <laughs> like Nathaniel has so much growth on screen that you naturally root for him because yeah. you are watching a character like grow and become a different, become a better version of themselves. Whereas with Josh, you're kind of just like, oh well, you're just like we're always there, or like. Or Greg, maybe Greg is the comparison. Greg is always there and his growth is off screen. With Jonathan, it's kind of like, well, I'm not seeing you do anything. I'm not seeing you change. I'm not seeing like any kind of character development, really. No. But with Steve, you see so much development. And that makes, as a viewer, makes you root for that character because you understand where they've started and where they end up. Steve goes from douchebag to amazing. And yeah. this is why Steve is such a fan favourite. Everyone loves Steve Harrington. Yeah. Yeah. Because he is shown that you can change and that you can, you can become a better person. But he does that primarily because... Nancy doesn't see him he kind of doesn't really understand why Nancy doesn't want to be with him anymore yeah and yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's her and and again that was another thing that she gets a lot of stick for being like why would you dump Steve it's, like, it's okay to not fancy someone anymore and it's it's okay yeah. to break up with someone she shouldn't be criticized for that she shouldn't shouldn't stay especially when you're only a teenager you shouldn't stay in relationships just because everyone says that you should but, and she can, she does the right thing for her. I personally wouldn't do it. But she wants to be with... Like, obviously, I wouldn't do it. Steve, Steve Harrington. Um, but, you know, she does the right thing for her. And I think it was really unfair criticism on her to be like, ooh, why'd she dump Steve? He's the best, blah, blah, blah. But like, well, because she didn't like him anymore. And she did not... She, she didn't like him, but they... they she Her feelings were elsewhere. And it's a yeah. valid choice that she should kind of totally be allowed to make. Yeah, absolutely. She's in season three slightly less. And season three had its problems, I feel, a lot because... like I like season three, but it wasn't as good as the other two because it's a lot of the groups are all split up and it's very mm-hmm. it's slightly disjointed and the pacing's a bit off. I also really went off Strange Things in season two at the end because of the focus on the, the romance between Eleven and Mike. I just kind of was... I'm not here for this. I'm not here for the romance between two kids. Yeah, well, that's a quite a focus of series three as well. Yeah. But it's a silly teenage 13-year-old first snogging. They just mostly just sit around and listen to naff 80s music and just <laughs> snog. That's it, really. It's fairly, like, teenage innocent. It's, it's a bit boring as well. <laughs> kind of like, I don't care. Why can't they be a gang? But yeah, they're, they're all sort of, like, split off. So it's Nancy and Jonathan, Steve and Dustin and Robin, who is the best. And maybe we should do another episode about why Robin is the absolute best, but she's a legend. <laughs> so she's played by Maya Hawke. Robin's a hero. There's a whole other reason as why Robin is an absolute legend, but she's amazing. And so, yeah, it's, it's Steve and Dustin and Robin. And then it's Mike and Eleven and Will and Lucas. And that, that, so they're, they're a more complete gang but they everybody's kind of dis they're off and it's, and it's like it's Joyce and Hopper who are off doing their thing and it's mm. so everybody's split up so the pacing didn't quite work but yeah as I said earlier Nancy is the one that kind of comes up with she she seeks out this story about rats and it's weird and she's the one that starts to piece it together that there's something weird going on with the rats and people who are like seeing these rats that are eating everything and it's it's all really creepy and odd but she again is finds herself bullied by these horrible old men like typical journalist guys who just think she's not worth anything and she, which is a storyline also seen in Gilmore Girls with Rory Gilmore mm, exactly. when she goes to the newspaper and she works for Logan's dad it's all like get me coffee Rory instead of yeah. 
you know, what she ends up doing is like going on the campaign trail with Barack Obama at the end of Gilmore Girls. So but yeah, it's a similar thing. Nancy, Nancy is the one that discovers that this is there's something not there's something fishy, mm. uh, and she has this really amazing conversation with her mum because she gets fired from her job for being gobby, basically, mm. and she's worried that her mum's going to be upset and her mum's going to be cross, and her mum's like, "I am so proud of you. You stood up for them, and you you showed that you were strong and you're not weak." And it's not weakness to show that you are passionate about something or anything. I'm, I'm, of course, I'm not angry with you. I'm unbelievably proud. And yeah. it's a really beautiful moment that they have together because it's kind of, yeah, it just, people, especially teenage girls are put down a lot for being passionate about things. And Nancy is, pays the price with her job. And I think this is another reason, that, again, that I'm kind of like, Steve and Nancy probably should have been together, is that Jonathan is like, no, we, we should keep going. You know, this is a good inter- internship. I think maybe we should just keep our heads down. Let's not investigate this. And she's like, but that's not the right thing to do. And I yeah. feel like Steve would have encouraged her. But anyway, I'm I'm just super pro Steve Harrington. So <laughs> It's all in his hair. It is the hair. It's magic. It's the hair. and But it's, it is the hair, but it's also just the general vibe. Like, he just has... A really lovely vibe. And yeah, like, I love you, Steve. good guy vibe. I'm like, I just want to look after Steve, and then I also want Steve, and I just think he's really funny as well. Like all the stuff he does with the kids, where they basically just like completely disrespect him the whole time. He's like, <laughs> I am in charge. There's like, a bit as well where everyone was like, this is peak mum. Where he has a tea towel and he angrily flips the tea towel like back over his shoulder, and you're like, oh my god, this feels like this is very much being told off by mum. Um, There's also like an amazing picture of Joe Keery out shopping for rugs. <laughs> oh my god, that's so good! <laughs> it was like a photo set of Joe Keery just like looking at rugs, and everyone's like, "This is peak mum, Steve Harrington." But yeah, I think I think Nancy is just she's so great, and I think I think she was hard done by in series three. I felt like we want more of her. I hope that she gets more to do in series four. I hope that she kind of is running the newspaper um, and. Yeah, I think Nancy Wheeler will, is one of those characters that you want to see where they are in 10 years or 15 years because she'll be on her way up to running the country, probably. Thank you for listening to this episode of Never Marry a Medford. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Obviously, you already have because you're listening to this. But we're also on Twitter and Instagram at Marry Medford. Please leave us a review and like and subscribe as it makes us more visible. Thank you. Bye.